Hello, and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. This is now episode 20 of the podcast, but the first one that will deal with Prince Caspian. So today we'll be looking at chapter one of Prince Caspian titled The Island. Uh, this is the second work in the Chronicles of Narnia to be published. Lewis uh, published it in 1951, began work on it not long after he had finished, uh, finished working on The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And he had mentioned in some personal letters to children that uh, when he had finished The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he didn't immediately have the idea for Prince Caspian in mind. He had an, an initial start on a separate story that involved Diggory and Polly uh, that he scrapped, but then revisited when he got to The Magician's Nephew. Um, but shortly after that, he did write Prince Caspian and then The Voyage of the Dawn Treader and so on uh, in this rush of a writing spree in the early 50s. Um, but as you know, if you look at uh, sets of the Narnia books that you might buy today, the order of them um, is arranged chronologically where it begins with The Magician's Nephew and then The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and so on. Uh, but the publication order is helpful to follow where you see uh, Lewis's story unfolding the way in which he wrote it and published it. Uh, during his life. It was after his death that the order of it began to be rearranged when put on bookshelves. Uh, so Prince Caspian is the next installment in the story. And we almost can see that immediately. As you open the book, you look at chapter one, the island, and you read the following sentence. Once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And it has been told in another book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, how they had a remarkable adventure. And now not only does he reference the first book in the opening sentence of this book, but the opening sentence is identical, at least in the first half, to the opening sentence of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In that book, the very opening, he says, once there were four children whose names were Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And here in Prince Caspian, he begins the exact same way. And so there's continuity here from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to Prince Caspian. We have the same four characters, the Pevensies. And in this uh, book, we'll have their return to Narnia. And he begins with this same mythic uh, fairy tale beginning, the, the once upon a time sort of opening. So we have this return to uh, the magical, the fantastic, the mythic, um, but also a direct link to the first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, by the identical line, but also the reference to the title of the first book itself in the opening sentence to this book. But I've already mentioned the phrase, the return to Narnia, which um, is important in understanding Prince Caspian because it's actually the official subtitle to the book. It's the only one of the Narnia books that has a subtitle. It's often not printed um, on the covers of copies of Prince Caspian or if you have an anthology of all seven. But it is the official subtitle, and it's one Lewis insisted on when he drafted the title of this book. He had several other titles he considered, like Drawn into Narnia and A Horn in Narnia, referencing Susan's horn, um, which as we'll find out later in the story is blown. Uh, Susan's horn is blown um, in the middle of the war, uh, which is what summons the four Pevensies uh, back from England into Narnia, but we don't know that yet. But the subtitle, The Return to Narnia, he did insist on. And uh, that, that phrase ev evokes a lot of different realities to this book that's meaningful. First of all, the fact that the four children are summoned back into Narnia is important. 
Uh, we find out in chapter one that it's been about a year since uh, their entrance into Narnia the first time uh, through the wardrobe at the professor's house. About a year later, they are at a railway station waiting on a train to take them to boarding school. Uh, not, not the most exciting journey ahead. And it's in this chapter that they are plucked out of that train platform, almost literally plucked. They, they feel pulled um, by this magical sensation and they are pulled back into Narnia. Uh, and so there is this return in that sense. But Devin Brown, um, in his book, Inside Prince Caspian, uh, does a great job commenting on how the return to Narnia uh, is rather is a rather rich phrase because it, it speaks to um, what has happened in Narnia in the year that uh, the four children have been gone. At the end of the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, they stumble back through the wardrobe uh, as they're hunting the white stag. They're stumbling back into the professor's house, and it's as though no time in the human world has passed, although they have spent much time as kings and queens in Narnia. But we find out here that although only a year has passed in human time, a thousand years have passed in Narnian time. So it would be um, it would be comparable to us in uh, 2020, the, the year of this uh, recording, if someone like William the Conqueror came <laughs> from a thousand years ago. Uh, so a great deal has changed in Narnia at the time. And what we will find out in the coming chapters is that Narnia is in ruins. Um, what characters in Prince Caspian uh, come to call the old Narnia, the old Narnia of Care Paravel and of High King Peter and so on. That that, has, that is a thousand years in the distance, um, in the distant past. And so there is a repairing of the ruins that needs to take place here where the old Narnia needs to be restored. This is more of a kingdom needing to be set right, uh, which um, in that sense, the phrase, the return to Narnia is rather appropriate. It's much like the return of the king in Lord of the Rings, where there is a restoration that needs to take place. Um, and of course, it's no accident that Lewis and Tolkien were fellow inklings reading their stories aloud to each other. So similarities between... Uh, their work are bound to appear. But I mentioned that phrase, repairing the ruins. This it, it, uh, is a phrase that comes from John Milton, uh, the 17th century poet. Uh, and he wrote a book on education where he talks about the task, the goal of education being to repair the ruins of our first parents. The idea that um, our task is to uh, restore Eden, to restore what has been broken and what has faded and what has been lost. Uh, and I want to quote Devin Brown again in that same work, Inside Prince Caspian, where he says this, quote, The Narnia we find at the start of Prince Caspian has had Miraz's spell of secular materialism imposed on it, somewhat like modern Western civilization. The once magical land has now become disenchanted, and the four children have been summoned to help break the spell and return Narnia to its former state. And so as we move through the story, this, this sense of loss and uh, ruin, this sense of a magic that has faded, a perfection that has been shattered, um, it's similar to the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, where we had the curse of sterility, the spell of deadness and paralysis from the White Witch. But uh, with King Miraz, we have a much more uh, human and earthy and ordinary 
sense of destruction. As Devin Brown says, the, the spell of secular materialism, rather than some sort of enchanting curse from a white witch, we have a regular despot. We have an, an ordinary tyrant, um, a narcissist who has dominated and repressed the land, and we need to restore it back to the magical world that it once was. So let's get to the story. Chapter one is titled The Island. It begins with the four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And as I mentioned, they are standing on the platform of a train station, ready to return uh, to school. And uh, I think the parallel there with um, the return to school proper versus their returning to Narnia. But uh, the return to Narnia is no less of an educational force, especially considering Milton's call for education to be the project of repairing the ruins. That's exactly what the Pevensies will be doing. So in effect, their return to Narnia is uh, teaching them who they are meant to be, who they are as they remember. You know, at, at first, they're not even entirely sure they're in Narnia when they get there. And over the course of time, they'll recognize Care Paravel, they'll recognize certain things, and they'll remember who they were, which is the primary goal of education is for all of us to remember who we are to restore Eden, to repair the ruins. Uh, But here they are on the precipice of a great journey, literally, where they're standing at the platform waiting for a train. But they're also on this precipice of a journey um, that is much more mysterious and magical that they're unaware of, unsuspecting, uh, in which they are summoned back to Narnia. Uh, And it's similar to um, Tolkien's first work, The Hobbit, where Bilbo Baggins at the beginning of that book is having an ordinary breakfast in his home and a company of dwarves descend on his house. And by the end of that chapter, he is being ushered out of his hobbit hole, uh, leaving his second breakfast half finished. And he is um, introduced to this grand quest, the road that lies before him, the great journey that he must travel uh, that involves trolls and dragons and gold and so on. But he was unsuspecting, and yet that was the road that was calling to him. And in fact, that book is called There and Back Again, um, the tale of Bilbo Baggins' The Hobbit. Well, There and Back Again would be a phrase that would be uh, apropos for this story, Prince Caspian. They've been there, the Pevensey children, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and now they will be back again to make uh, all things right to make everything sad come untrue, to use Tolkien's phrase. And so standing on the precipice here, waiting for the train, and yet being summoned by this magical Narnian force is, a, is quite an appropriate and quite a uh, typically Lewisian start to this story. And it's noteworthy that Lucy is the first one to be singled out of the four children. All four of them are named at the beginning, but by the end of the second paragraph, Lewis says Lucy was going to boarding school for the first time, which is just an interesting detail where she's singled out there. And then it's right after that, that suddenly Lucy gave a sharp little cry, like someone who has been stung by a wasp. So it's through Lucy again, just like in the first book, it's through Lucy again that we're invited to see the return to Narnia and the uh, advent of the magical, the introduction of this great fantasies through the eyes, through the perspective of the youngest, where Lucy is the first to be pulled. Um, and then we have Edmund and then Peter and then Susan, uh, which is an interesting ordering. Uh, Devin Brown speaks to this as well, where that ordering is the same that we'll see later in the book, where Lucy is the first to see Aslan 
and then Edmund, and then Peter, and then Susan, which also points ahead to the problem of Susan uh, in the very last book, in the last battle, which we'll talk about when we get to that book. Uh, But something that is said by Edmund, uh, as they are being pulled on by this mysterious force, pulled away from the train platform into Narnia, he says, I felt just the same as if I were being dragged along, a most frightful pulling. Ugh, it's beginning again. And so this pulling ultimately will be for their good. They will be drawn back into Narnia, uh, where they are the ones who are able to make right what has been wronged, where this is an ultimately good experience, them being pulled away from uh, the train station. And yet it's described as something painful. Edmund says, I felt as if I were being dragged along a most frightful pulling. And there are two things to uh, be reminded of here. First is that it is similar language Lewis uses in Surprised by Joy, uh, his later um, sort of autobiography about his conversion to Christianity. And in Surprised by Joy, he talks about how his conversion was something unexpected, something he wasn't even wishing for. Uh, He talks about it as um, something he was reluctant for, the famous phrase Lewis being the most reluctant convert. He says this, um, he says he felt that he was brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. Uh, The idea that he was uh, trying to resist this unrelenting force that was drawing him Uh, to the faith, which of course is the call of Christ. The pull of the Holy Spirit on Lewis's life, he said, was um, he describes himself perhaps that night as the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. This idea that um, the the call of Christ is one that might feel painful or might feel jarring or startling or jolting, and yet it is the most liberating and the most gracious act we could ever encounter. Uh, And the second um, reminder of that that we have is directly from the Narnian stories, where in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, Eustace is, by his own greed, turned into a dragon. And what Aslan does to restore Eustace to his boyhood away from his dragoning, is to claw at his scales, that he scrapes away the scales of his dragonhood um, and throws him into the waters to transform him into a boy again. And when Eustace is telling Edmund about it, he says it was the most dreadful, the most painful thing, and yet he's human again. So the, the notion of salvation, of conversion, of the magic of grace being something that is restorative, something that is transformational, but that comes at a cost. It's it's painful. It cuts. It is um, unpleasant to our sinful state. Well, we get an inkling of that here with Edmund saying that it was a most frightful pulling. But then he says, it's beginning again, which of course the story is beginning all over again with Prince Caspian. But it comes with this nagging um, pull on these people who might in their complacency be much more Um, reluctant. But then he later says, this is magic. I can tell by the feeling. The concern though, is that when they arrive there, when they arrive in Narnia, unlike the time when they stumble through the wardrobe, they are not immediately met with this overwhelming sense of awe and delight and fantasy. They, they land on this Island in the middle of this thick wood. Um, 
which is similar to the forestry that Lucy encountered at the back of the wardrobe. But here, um, Lucy, in fact, says, oh, Peter, do you think we can possibly have got back to Narnia? Which speaks to uh, the fact that she's questioning. um, It doesn't quite feel like Narnia. It doesn't quite look like Narnia. It looks like an ordinary wood and an ordinary ocean and so on. Now they have fun while they're there, but she wonders if they are in the same place where it's not immediately familiar to her. Uh, it speaks to the possibility that the Narnian magic has faded, where it has and we'll discover that it in fact has, that King Miraz has banished um, the Narnian animals underground, that the old Narnia of Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy is a thousand years uh, distanced in history, that it speaks to a loss here, where they're back in Narnia, but... Um, the the wonder of it all seems to have faded with time. And that's doubled down with this statement Peter says a couple paragraphs later where he says, by Jove, this is good enough. Um, which is a powerful statement that goodness is good enough, that um, the idea of goodness and satisfaction are evoked with that phrase, this is good enough, but also the, the wonder about what has happened, the, the loss of magic in old Narnia, that, that, uh, the wonder if this is good enough. But Peter and Susan and Edmund and Lucy uh, go on to uh, play. They take off their shoes and socks and play in the water. They are on this island um, with this massive forest in there and they go play in the ocean. Um, and there's this, uh, un- this wonderful continuity back to the line in which in the wardrobe yet again, where, um, the sense of the numinous is still evoked here. Uh, back in the first book, when, uh, the four children meet the beavers, uh, they hear the name of Aslan for the first time. And I want to quote something back from the line, the witch in the wardrobe again, where, uh, the beavers tell the children that Aslan is on the move, and it's the first time they hear his name. And Lewis says a very curious thing had happened where at the sound of that name, it evoked a series of uh, feelings, both of awe and terror, but also of delight and wonder. And Lewis says this, this is back in the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. He says, perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't, I, which you don't understand but in the dream, it feels as if it has some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one, which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. And it's that phrase at the end, the notion that the dream was so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. Well, this is that feeling we have at Prince Caspian, Well, where the dream that was so beautiful, this glorious land of Narnia that they left after the hunting of the white stag, the wishing to get into that dream again has come true. Now, they couldn't find it on their own. Remember, the professor says that uh, any sort of return to Narnia will come when it's least expected that they must be called, they must be summoned to Narnia. They can't find the formula to maneuver their way back into it again. They can't go back through the wardrobe again like it's some sort of magic portal that they can control. Narnia calls to them. In fact, Aslan says that, that you you would not have called to me unless I have been calling to you. So 
they find themselves back into that dream again. To use the phrase from the line, the witch in the wardrobe, they're always wishing you could get into that dream again. And now that they're here, they don't quite recognize the fullness of it yet. It's just the opening chapter of Prince Caspian. But now that they are here, back into the dream again, it's noteworthy that almost the bulk of this chapter is focused on the hunger and the thirst that the children are experiencing. So much of the dialogue is rather uneventful here. We don't have uh, Lucy meeting Tumnus like we had in chapter one of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where uh, the mundanity and the ordinariness of London immediately transforms into the the grandeur and the mystique of Narnia, of centaurs, and so on. We don't have that. We have a great deal of dialogue between these four children about sandwiches and about uh, looking for fresh water and about uh, lamenting how hungry they're going to end up being. And, and much of it could seem rather drab. And yet, if you look at what Lewis's focus is on, his focus is on hunger and thirst, perfectly ordinary experiences, and yet they are two forms of intense desiring. That that seems to be the focus here, that once they have been brought back into the dream of Narnia, they've been summoned back into this beautiful land, a land that we'll find out, though, that the magic has been rather diluted or vanished altogether. Um, yet, what is a- awakened within them is this intense focus and emphasis on human desire. And uh, mediated, obviously, in, in the sort of biological desires of hunger and thirst. Yet the focus is uh, unmistakable that the, the children are much more finely attuned to what they are wanting to eat, to drink, to play, um, all of these natural instincts we have of desires we have that we uh, intensely wish to be satisfied and satisfied soon and satisfied frequently. And that's what their dialogue focuses on. So um, there's a direct connection here between um, the desires of the children and that first awakening of desire back in the beaver's home with the mention of Aslan, that perhaps Lewis might argue there's a deeper, more transcendent and spiritual desire that Narnia seems to awaken within us. Even the Narnia of Prince Caspian that um, is, is a thousand years faded from the golden age that we read about in the first book, yet this longing and this aching for a return home, the deep abiding human ache in the heart for home, for Aslan, for the kingdom to be restored, the the longing to repair the ruins. This is what that horn um, awakens in us. That horn that is sounded brings the children into Narnia, and we'll find out more about that as the plot unravels. But that horn sounding awakens much more of us than a mere plot device. It reminds the children and it reminds us as readers of the call to return to Narnia, the call to return to Eden, the call to return to heroism and glory and joy and satisfaction, joy that stabs into our everyday life, as Lewis would describe in Surprised by Joy. Joy surprises us. We get glimpses of it as it invades our everyday experiences, these profound moments of our life where we are called further up and further in to experience the grandeur again and again. Interestingly, um, Edmund advocates that they um, 
look around for berries and roots and so on, that they recognize that the sandwiches they happen to have with them won't suffice for long. So Edmund says, look here, there's only one thing to be done. We must explore the wood. Hermits and knights errant and people like that always manage to live somehow if they're in a forest. They find roots and berries and things. Which, interestingly, this is Edmund's appeal to the stories he had read in order to model their survival. That what must be done is an exploration of the world. We must explore the wood. And then he appeals to these heroes of stories that he's familiar with. Hermits and knights errant and people like that. He says that's what they do in the old stories. right? They root around for berries and roots and things. Well, then that must be what we are to do. So we get this um, sort of inside joke from Lewis about uh, the way we are to go forward. How are we to explore? How are we to wander? How are we to journey ahead? Well, we get our clue from the stories that we appeal to what the knights and the heroes and the myths have done, that we need to read the right stories. And back in uh, considering the next book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that's exactly where Eustace Scrub goes wrong. He didn't read the right stories. The stories he read at school had nothing to do with dragons and gold and quests. And so he becomes victim of uh, his own greed. Whereas if he had read the right stories, Lewis seems to suggest, he might know how to go ahead, just like Edmund does here. There's only one thing to be done. We must explore the wood like the hermits and the knights errant and people like that would have done. But perhaps the most remarkable moment of this opening chapter comes at the very end where as they are wandering through the wood, they discover, they're struggling through the branches and they discover this delicious smell. What Lewis says, they were beginning to get very tired of it when they noticed a delicious smell and then a flash of bright color high above them at the top of the right bank. This is Narnian language. We get this delicious smell, a bright color flashing high above them as they are traveling Uh, following this stream to see where it leads. And then they discover two particular things that stand as symbols, um, quite powerful symbols for what Prince Prince Caspian will ultimately center on. The first thing they find is an apple tree. Lucy, and Lucy notices it first. I say, exclaimed Lucy, I do believe that's an apple tree. And Lewis says this, it was. They panted up the steep bank, forced their way through some brambles, and found themselves standing round an old tree that was heavy with large yellowish golden apples as firm and juicy as you could wish to see. This is familiar territory for us. That they, Amongst um, all of the discussion of food and water and what they're going to do, they happen upon this beautiful apple tree with lush golden apples um, and this delicious smell. Uh, which readers of Narnia familiar with Magician's Nephew will see how Lewis returns to this um, with Diggory Kirk's experience with um, the orchard and the apples at the end of The Magician's Nephew. Uh, So the apple tree being the first thing they find that evokes this um, sense of, of joy, satisfaction, wonder, the fulfillment of an appetite. Um, Susan says, this must have been an orchard long, long ago before the place went wild and the wood grew up. And so notice that uh, that Edenic language, that language of Eden, where she says, this must have been an orchard from long, long ago. This apple tree as the symbol of Eden, 
from this land, this orchard of long ago, before the place went wild and the wood grew up. Almost before the loss, before the fall, before weeds and wildness, and before everything grew up and faded. Right. So this apple tree uh, comes to represent nature proper, the, the way things ought to be, the status quo ante, the way things were before, before the fall, before everything went wrong. This apple tree seems to um, speak to that sort of um, prelapsarian glory, that, that glory from before the fall, that glory of Eden. And then the second thing they discover is an old stone wall, which is a curious second symbol, because if the apple tree comes to represent nature, Eden, the way things were um, before, the stone wall represents uh, culture, man's building. Stone walls speak to something that man has manufactured or that man has assembled. And of course, that stone wall uh, we discover will be part of the ruins of Care Paravel and the children, it will dawn on them where exactly they are and the question of what has happened since the last time they were in Narnia. In the final sentence of the chapter, Lewis says, it was a bright, secret, quiet place and rather sad. And all four stepped out into the middle of it, glad to be able to straighten their backs and move their limbs freely. The idea that wherever they are is a bright, secret, quiet place but also rather sad. It weaves these two strands together of um, the reality, the melancholy, the sadness of what uh, has happened, the sadness of the way things are now, mixed with the nostalgia, the wonder, and the beauty of the thing, the way things were, and the way things ought to be but aren't any longer. In that sense, the apple tree and the stone wall might represent nature and culture, right? The two things that God has given for Adam, this natural environment, uh, this perfect home, and then a perfect job, which is to cultivate the ground, to create culture, name the animals, uh, build Eden out, um, work the ground. Uh, The toil of Adam is cultivating, culturing. And so the tree and the wall as symbols of nature and of culture um, that in Genesis are beautiful gifts from God, the gift of a home and the gift of work, but after the fall have been riddled with weeds and with fading and with cracks and so on, where now uh, the natural world that the Pevensey children are discovering is overgrown, filled with nettles and thorns and wildness. And the stone wall of what was once this grand castle where they, in fact, themselves were crowned at the end of the line, the witch in the wardrobe, uh, has crumbled into ruins. So nature has fallen and culture has fallen. uh, And both nature and culture need to be redeemed. They need to be restored. And Aslan is going to use kings and queens. He's going to use Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy and Caspian and Trumpkin, and so many other wonderful creatures. And by extension, he's going to use us to repair the ruins of our first parents. He's going to use us to restore from the weeds and the nettles the glorious apple tree, and to restore from the ruins and from the stone wall a glorious castle once again.
So thank you for listening. Be sure to tune in next time as we look at chapter two of Prince Caspian titled The Ancient Treasure House.